0: Hello and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People, the podcast where I usually sit down with somebody who's lived a truly extraordinary life. Due to government guidelines, we obviously can't quite literally sit together at the moment, but that's certainly not going to stop us. I'm so thrilled and excited to say that my guest today is leading psychotherapist and counsellor, Julia Samuel, MBE. Julia has been essential in guiding many, many bereaved parents through the tragedy of losing a child. She spent 23 years at St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington, with her experiences leading her to launch the charity Child Bereavement UK. She's written two books, the most recent one, This Too Shall Pass, being described as a beautifully written celebration of the strength of human spirit. So you can see why... um, I wanted to have Julia on the podcast. Uh, Julia, welcome. Lovely to see you, Katie, <laughs> even if it's across the screen. Yeah, it's like it's not it's not uh, our traditional way of sitting down and becoming intimate and and connecting, but uh I just had to have you on um because as the title suggests extraordinary people. I think what struck me with you is the extraordinary impact that you've had on thousands of people, young lives that are not no longer with us, families, parents, extended relatives, perhaps people you've never even met through your books. And you come from extraordinary beginnings also. You know, you're, there's so many different facets to your story that are quite unbelievable that when I sat down and thought about how I'll start this episode, although I've read that sort of formal description of you and who you are, how would you describe who you are and what you do?
1: I actually think the thing that I'm good at is building relationships, building relationships with people that I'm much more interested in what's going on them on the inside than I am on the outside. And actually having close and kind of truthful relationships gives me much more than it ever gives them. So I just feel incredibly lucky that I found quite bizarrely in a way from because it certainly wasn't what was expected of me, um, uh, a job that I really love and
0: that has given me so many wonderful experiences and insights. And it's interesting because I, I thought when I thought about today and talking to you in a sort of British British sense, I thought, I wonder if it fills you have dread to talk about yourself because you're a listener, you're a giver, you know, people must not just come to you professionally for advice but in your personal life also I mean is is this out of character for you to spend 45 minutes being questioned and <laughs> it's really not my comfort zone I mean <clears throat> I, I
1: I I mean I kind of know myself and I know my vulnerabilities um but I much prefer listening and I'm much it's really when I'm a kind of like myself the most when I'm working because I can be just as much a cow as the next person in kind of when I'm not working Mm -hmm. and so when I'm working it's not like I become a different person but it kind of heightens the kind of good qualities of me and I feel like a good version of myself you probably have that in what you do with the days that you kind of really
0: um A pride of the work you're doing, the foundation, when it has great days. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm learning that in lockdown now um, because my role at the charity is, you know, it needs empathy. It needs patience, which all sound like qualities of a mother, but I find it enjoyable and, and like you, it brings out the best in me. But at home, I'm not patient with my children. And, you know, I've really struggled um, with the homeschooling and balancing work and and actually realising perhaps I need to work on myself as a parent slightly. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think we all need to work on ourselves as a parent. And why I think we
1: feel worse as a parent is because we what, what we care about most. Like we love our kids more than anything else. And it's the version of ourselves we want to be. The best, but it's also mm. incredibly demanding and repetitive. Mm-hmm. And I think with lockdown, what's so difficult is that we have no clarity of boundaries and roles. So within the four walls of your kitchen and your sitting room and your, you know, your house or your your flat, you have every role. You're a mom, you're a teacher, you're a partner, you're a friend, you're running the foundation, you have your career. And all of them are kind of mushed into one kind of messy pile. Mm -hmm. And normally you can go out to work, you know, put on your makeup, put on your kit, go out and come back. And so that you can have clarity into which version of yourself you are. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, when you're doing homeschooling, knowing that you were recording with me in the afternoon, you couldn't really give it the space and time. So you Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, you do three things a little bit well rather than one thing well at a time. And I think...
0: uh, we get kind of cross with ourselves you're obviously very motivated and ambitious but you you didn't have any reason to be because you know your background you could have quite easily you know the the subject that you went into is is very sensitive and it's it's quite distressing you know and I know myself with my charity because you know it's one for burns and disfigurement it's not what I'd call a sexy charity you know it's not cuddly animals it's it's not sort of visual stuff that people can go and do and actually it's a subject that a lot of people hope they'll never have to discuss or personally have to deal with and you know the subject that you you pursued it's people don't want to talk about it and I just wondered going back to sort of the earlier years of your life what what is it that's different about you to other people that actually pursued the most difficult road really I don't know if it's the most difficult,
1: but I, I mean, certainly thinking about a child dying is unbearable for all of us. I mean, it's still unbearable for me now, even though I've been doing it for a long time. I think there were lots of reasons. I think um, so my mum and dad, my mum, by the time she was 25, her mother, her father and her sister and her brother had all died. And my father, his father and his brother had died by the time he was in his mid 20s. So so I, I was brought up in a household. We were five children, two sets of twins. So I've got a twin brother and twin sisters, five of us in four years,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which is quite a lot. Yeah, <laughs> Your <laughs> poor <see>. mother. <laughs> so, but I think there was a lot of, I mean, and they were that generation. So they fought in the war and they were very stiff upper lip. Mm-hmm. And what their kind of attitude was, which is the only one they could possibly have used, was what you don't talk about isn't going to hurt you. Right. So anything that really is important and painful and difficult, you bury. So it's all off limits. So It was all off limits. So we never, I mean, there were black and white photographs of those people. but I never really knew who they were. I didn't have any stories. Mm-hmm. And I think unconsciously that influenced me to go towards... um. Uh, bereavement. Um, But I had no idea when I was doing it. I didn't really realise that that's why I was. But, you know, looking back on it, I can see it. And I think I'm ambitious because of sibling rivalry. I mean, I I don't know if I was born ambitious as well, but certainly being the youngest child of five children under four, I think I always worked. I worked at school. Mm -hmm. I've never not worked. I've worked all through my pregnancies, all through my life, I've never not worked. I like, I really like working. Mm.
0: Do you think it's important
1: uh, then for identity? I think for identity, for me, for identity, it was crucial so mm-hmm. that I wasn't someone's wife, just someone's wife or someone's daughter or someone's sister. I didn't even know I was doing it, obviously, because I hadn't had any therapy at that point. But kind of now, my professional identity is what has enabled me to navigate all sorts of quite complicated, difficult things. I mean, a simple one like my children growing up and leaving home, Mm -hmm. because I have other interests and other roles and, you know, things that I'm doing and focus means I do miss them. And I actually found it quite difficult, but I didn't go bonkers. Mm -hmm. I did go bonkers for a little bit, actually. If you ask my husband, he'll say I definitely went bonkers for a bit. But I think I would have gone more bonkers if I hadn't had a job and a, and a separate life and a separate identity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the same for any of us. When anything comes to an end, not in the severe case of bereavement, but when a part of our life closes, if if it's all we have and all that defines us, it's incredibly difficult to to reinvent. You know, I think that was the journey I went on myself after, after being burnt and almost no choice but to reinvent. And now I'm so conscious of that and having so many strands in life. When you when you look back at that, at that
1: point, there was a kind of pivot point, I guess, when you went through all those terrible operations. What do you think was the underlying, um, uh, not motivation, kind of thing
0: that gave you the grit to rebuild your life? I think it's the things I was always criticised for in school. Stubbornness, you know, a bit, a bit arrogant and determined, ambitious, and it's sort of... Interesting that you were criticised for them and they were actually like, fuck you, I'm not going to... Yeah, because I I always think if it had been a car accident or a house fire, would it have been a totally different outcome? Because I think the fact that it was, you know, man-made and not a natural disaster, it made me so determined that you will not write the end to my story. You know, you may have had a few seconds appearing in the story, but I will close this and and you know that's that just grew and grew
1: it is almost like a decision that I will not be a victim mm-hmm. that this isn't going to be my identity I'm not going to be with you a, a, just a woman that was burned mm-hmm. you went through all those terrible operations <laughs> and so that you could be at peace with mm-hmm. the injuries and then you developed a whole new career and it was like the injuries and like a speck in the in the landscape this is who you are now
0: Yeah, yeah. the rest almost became irrelevant, actually. It's irrelevant, yeah. Yeah. I did wonder... But but, but shaped you. Yes. So it's never irrelevant. You know, we always carry our past
1: with us and it informs and influences us.
0: And I always find it quite a frustrating question if I'm being interviewed by sort of red-top tabloid, like quite lazy journalism. They'll always say, oh, aren't you so glad what happened to you happened because you wouldn't be who you are and you wouldn't be doing what you're doing... And I just, I have to really control my, it's, it's good exercise actually for me to control my, to punch them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Cause I do feel like saying, am I glad I was raped and had acid rain in my face? Not particularly. No, I'm sure. No, I, funnily people, enough. Yeah. I, I haven't, I have enough self belief that I might have known to work in broadcasting otherwise <laughs> because it's quite an extreme, extreme measure. But you know, it's quite an insult really, but I mean, it's, it's interesting. This kind of. You know, the world is obsessed with positivity and sometimes to a detriment. And when people, um, experience losing someone, there's this kind of obsession with making it okay and sort of taking the hurt away from somebody and finding a reason why everything happens to people. And, you know, and at the moment, lots of us are trying to find the right thing to say to people because lots of people are losing loved ones, careers, uh, marriages. What, what is the right thing and what is the right thing to say and do?
1: I think the the right thing is to acknowledge the loss. So that's the first thing to say. I'm so sorry that you lost your job or I'm so sorry that your child died or your partner died or you've broken up. So just acknowledge it. I think whenever you go straight to trying to fix it, people feel diminished that their the level of their loss and what their experience has been is in some way... Um, being wiped out by your saying, oh, well, you can have another child or, you know, there are more fish in the sea or, you know, you're so talented I know that you'll get another job. Yeah. Um, But people do it because they find it incredibly difficult to sit with the discomfort of the pain of the loss.
0: Mm.
1: And part of that is because it's physiological. I mean, even – so I work a lot with people online now, obviously, and I always have done – if you were suffering now, I would feel it physically in my body. Mm-hmm. If i was sitting opposite you, I'd feel it because you transmit, you're meant to transmit the suffering. Mm-hmm. And that sit would come and sit in my body. In your gut. And there's a therapy in my gut. Exactly. That's exactly the right word. And as a therapist, I use that as information to work with. But if you're a friend or a parent, I mean, parents find children suffering excruciating to sit with mm-hmm. because I'll. Rollers, I mean, I find it excruciating to sit with, you know, because our roller's parents is you go and talk to the teacher, you pick them up, you brush off their knees. So we always want to make things better. And I think friends and family always think they want to make things better, but actually stay where they are and then follow their lead. Mm -hmm. So if they want to change the subject and talk about, I know I'm going to be okay, I'll get another job, then you go with that. If they're just quiet, just sit with them and let the silence, Mm -hmm. you know, be and if they want to tell you, I mean, I think as a friend, walking and talking is the most therapeutic thing you can do mm-hmm. because as you're moving your body, you kind of psychologically shift things. And being in the air, being in the green is really healthy and really not really healthy, it's really good for you. And then in the old days, I'd say go and stop and have a sort of cup of tea or a treat afterwards or go to the pub
0: or a pizza, yeah. obviously. not now. <laughs> so now that we are... Um you know, in such a strange setup, you know, all our usual coping mechanisms and the way all the things we know that are good for us, we can't necessarily access and, and live that way at the moment. Do you have um, the way you've adjusted personally for yourself? You know, you talked about limiting social media and things like that. Do you have a routine or any kind of strict protocols in lockdown for yourself, or for your own personal protection? So I've
1: done, I mean, I've had so I've been a bit Corona coaster like everybody. Mm. So there've been times I thought, oh, I've got this. I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really nice not being quite so busy or mm-hmm. um, being able to watch lots of telly. But then other times it's been like the Jaws music when I've woken up at four in the morning with the doom, 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 you know, mm-hmm. anxiety of not seeing my family, feeling that there's a pathogen outside threatening at the gates, you know, that yeah. is is scary. And so the things that I do and the things that I encourage people to do, none of it is like a police state. So all of it has to come with some, the key of it is self-compassion, that you know yourself best Mm -hmm. and do what works for you. But yes, roughly having some kind of schedule for the day really helps and some kind of routine, whether it's work in the morning and do other things in the afternoon or when you exercise, but you need to have some. You need to create a structure that helps you feel contained and bounded. Mm-hmm. So, like with you, it's homeschooling in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe work in the afternoon. Um, exercise. Exercise is the equivalent to low dose of antidepressants. So mm-hmm. it re- reduces your cortisol and raises your dopamine, which is your calming. And when you get anxious, like I did in the middle of the night, it sends you on alert, mm-hmm. sort of hyper alert. So exercise tells you that you've flown. And it calms you. And if you follow that with even five minutes of breathing in for the count of seven and out for the count of 11, you calm down.
0: You know, I, I go to therapy weekly and I'm continuing it on Skype at the moment. And sometimes I dump so much. I've got, I've got a male therapist at the moment and I dump so much on him and I walk out and I think, God, I feel so bad. You know, I know people dump on me all the time and I, and I feel bad dumping on him. And you know, how do you cope with it? You obviously do still take on the suffering. It's impossible not to, is it? I mean, it's a combination that I, I'd be no good if I didn't
1: feel and I didn't care because people pick it up. Mm. So, of course, I'm affected. And I hear very, very difficult stories, which, even at the time, if they don't um, uh, hit me too badly, I wake in the night with images. Mm. But I, I have developed tons of coping mechanisms. So I use kickboxing. I meditate. Oh, wow. Okay. I do. Uh, yeah. I can punch really
0: hard. I, do you know? I'm not surprised. Yeah. You seem like the kind of woman that could really pace someone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and
1: I do Adrian's yoga. I journal. So I take my own blooming medicine to calm me down. Yeah. And, because my lens of what is normal is so abnormal, mm. I get you know for my children and like so I've got seven grandchildren, so when my um my daughters and my daughter in law were pregnant, I basically hold my breath for nine months because my job was with families mm-hmm. whether you know there were terrible outcomes so i i and and i they they're much better than me but you know when i'm with my grandchildren on a bicycle or something i am constantly terrified they're going to mm-hmm. fall into a car because i've you know there's not a story i haven't heard mm-hmm. so it has affected me but then on the other hand i can still be a complete prat but also i do know the value of life and i when i'm being a prat i can talk myself down and really know what matters mm. rather than be totally the whole time a prat, if you see it I mean. yeah. and I, you know the, when I was at St Mary's when the when, before I worked there my children were quite young so if they were ill I chucked them on the sofa with disney and calpol then once I started working at the hospital I would ring the pediatricians were so nice to me. I mean, the minute their temperature was over, whatever it's meant to be, over normal, I'd ring the pediatrician saying, have they got meningitis? What's this? (laughs) And even two in the morning, they'd be so nice to me. They'd say, do this, do that. Is they all right? And my husband was like, you're a lunatic. But I mean, you can't not be affected by what you see. Yeah. also from something else
0: how did we get here with Claudia Winkleman and Professor Tanya Byron in these in-depth one-on-one therapy sessions we dig deep into personal stories with fascinating and emotional revelations a passionate insightful and moving experience with clear outcomes to each episode he is as anxious about attachment with you as you are with him Oh, wow. Oh, wow.
1: That's crazy, isn't it? Oh, that's a weird feeling. Wait, so. Oh, God. It's... do you just feel like, whoa, why didn't I know that all along? Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps.
0: you know bereavement is difficult at any age but i seeing such young lives being lost were you were you very much there for the staff as well okay, so i was there for the staff um i trained the staff i did i
1: educated the staff for their their degrees um and then i did sort of supervision with them when they were difficult um situations and actually i'm supporting some some medical teams now mm. um and yeah it's intense
0: yeah. Gosh, that's kind of sort of took the breath out of me, really. it's um, I suppose we don't really think about that because we think about, well, it's their job and they've trained for this and they, you know, we all just go to work and then we come home and we separate. But actually, when your job involves human life, I think it's difficult to expect that of somebody, even the most professional person.
1: Yeah, they are. I really, I've been so... um sort of thrilled at the recognition they're getting and it's a bite blooming time. Mm. Um and you know, I
0: I just am blown away by them really. I think we all are. I mean, again, for me, you know, when, when people talk about it, I think, well, I've I've experienced it firsthand. You know, I've been a patient gone to sleep woken up and the same staff members there and you think how long do these people work for and they look harassed and sweaty and they don't get proper lunch breaks and they stay on for unpaid overtime and they they do drop their mask and they do take on your your crap so to speak you know and it's just and it's the small kindnesses isn't it like they hold
1: your hand yeah or you can feel them kind of putting a swab around your mouth if it's dry, or they give you a look, a really kind look. And you're right, then they go home to young kids and shopping and tidying and cleaning and
0: homeschooling and then come back and do it again. I mm. mean, it's amazing. I'll, I'll never forget, I remember saying, it wasn't it was it wasn't someone senior, it was somebody junior at the time of early days of my uh, recovery. And I, I was alone with this young girl and I said, will I ever go back to looking the same as before? And she sort of looked at me for what was probably only seconds, but felt like quite a still long time. And she said, No, there won't be any before. There'll be a new life now. And then she had she was tidying up, you know, when they do all the um they have the plastic thing and they put the PPE yeah. in. And she just bundled it all up quickly, held it to her chest. And I saw her just a tear, and then she just left the room. And it was weird because I thought, she's she's like me, she's a young woman. And she's feeling what I'm feeling, and I, I didn't, ex, you know, because they're normally so closed off and armored. It, yeah, yeah, it humanized her for me.
1: And you never forgot it. It's like you could draw that video, couldn't you? Every word, the look, the yeah. It's like it, absolutely kind of sitting in you like a live video. Mm. Did you have one consultant who really gave
0: you courage that you kind of built a quite a deep relationship with? I did, and. I'm so glad it was a male because if it hadn't been, I think um, I would have had a different outlook on men. And, you know, in in some ways a man tried to destroy me, but another man picked me straight back up. And yeah. he was the same age as my dad. He was a Muslim. Um, and he was just phenomenal. He, he used to come in on his bank holiday and visit me as a friend. (laughs) So it was just this weird friend. We're still really good friends now. We've been Zooming. Yeah. I mean, he's gone back to, um, Karachi in Pakistan where he lives now. Um, but he was NHS in Chelsea and Westminster for a long time, but we're Zoom calling now in lockdown and you wouldn't think, well, you know, what does, a he's now 62, I'm 36. What what do we have in common? Actually loads, you know. (laughs) that it's fantastic. Yeah.
1: And he built your trust in yourself and your trust in men again, because that's the thing that gets destroyed, isn't it? Trust, mm. trust in life, trust in the day, trust in people.
0: Mm. Yeah, he did. And that was the biggest healer to let go and trust myself that I will cope with being hurt again. Because I think yeah. that's another thing, isn't it, of you know, one of my questions to you was going to be about what's the end goal with patients in therapy. Because I certainly know with me, I had one therapist that I stopped seeing because it was this obsession of like, that's the worst thing that's going to happen to you. It's all over. Let's focus on the good. And I thought, well, it might not be because there's lots of other hats I want to wear and titles I want to fulfill. And, and it hasn't been. I've I've been through other hurt and, and other trauma since privately, but, you know, and and that's been You've hard. You've suffered. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and sometimes I think, you know, it is like you said, it's about trusting yourself to let go and it's normal to get hurt again, you know? And it's trusting to dare to love again is the thing that
1: I go for really. In the end, it's only love that really matters that yeah. you have enough self-compassion and love for yourself and that you dare risk loving again, whether that's a person or or a charity or some project or a job that you dare put yourself above, that you risk putting yourself out there without certainty. And I think when people try and have sort of ultimate control because they're never going to get hurt again, I'm never going to let that happen to me again. Then if you think of your emotional bandwidth, if you have pain one end mm. and you have joy the other end, if you block your capacity to feel pain, you incrementally block your capacity to feel. Mm-hmm. So you function, you breathe in and out, you kind of can get, you can operate, you can get to work. But your capacity to engage and fully enjoy and feel enriched by life is foreshortened. Mm. So you know we all know people like that who've kind of shut down from difficult experiences. It could be from loss, it could be from rejection it could be i mean living losses, many different kinds of losses uh, well life hasn't given them what they expected to. they function, but they have no pleasure or joy just in in life itself it's that is too high it? a price, yeah,
0: yeah, when I've met people like that, I come away thinking they're existing they're mm. they're not living and Sometimes you think that numbness is the depression, but I think it's almost checking out. And like you said, just, co- you know, turning up for the dress rehearsal, but you're not really feeling the performance, you know? No, you're not um, in it. How did you, I mean, you don't need
1: to answer this, obviously. How did your mum and dad bear watching you suffer and survive? How did they, you know, you went back to live with them. How
0: did they? How did they cope with that? I think... Because they're very selfless and they're very family orientated, they submersed themselves into the role of carer for me so that they didn't focus on their own pain and hurt, and probably did check out slightly of that and when i you know I went back home to recover when it was time for me to leave again, that was another trauma for my parents because you know we're from Hampshire, we're from a rural village, that's why I went back home, I wanted to move back to London once again, my parents were like not London terrified terrified, no. yeah. And again, for my mum, she'd nurtured me. I'd regressed, and she was losing me again. You know, and it was like a child leaving home again. But Must have much, been. more yeah. much worse. Much worse. And I, I think they had PTSD, and I think it was they would have done. Yeah. Did right? they get treatment? Not really. I mean, when I because I was in a coma, you know, I was admitted and then put in an induced coma. The so therapist. Awful. Yeah, so they sort of took my therapist. The therapist would come to the end of the bed every day when I was unconscious and without them knowing, sort of support them. But they are, you know, my mum and dad are in their 70s. Old school. Yeah, yeah. They don't, they're don't. they not brought up. My mum once told me a story that her parents would say, you don't cry and if you had the urge to, you go upstairs and do it in a pillow. And so so, the- <laughs> so awful, makes me cry thinking yeah. about it. Yeah, but then my mum is, you know, she... She's very silent and strong. She's a retired school teacher and her strength has really helped me through what I went yeah. through, you know, not she's modeled it. Yeah, she's modeled it. Yeah. And she's not she's not a gushy person. That's just not her. I could tell you how many times I've seen her cry in my whole lifetime and it's very few times considering what our family have been through. Oh, gosh. Um so yeah, that's-, that's probably why you find homeschooling difficult
1: by the way. Oh really? Uh, she was a teacher. Oh, right. Okay. That's Because you probably role model your, you probably think you should be like your mum as a a homeschooler. Yeah, she's perfect. Yeah. And I'm, exactly. (laughs) And so you, you know, that's your gingerbread cutout person that you should be. Yeah. But just to put it in brackets on the side, if you're the the best treatment for PTSD is EMDR, which isn't really a talking treatment. I've done this. Yeah. Have you done it? I I give it to people. Yeah. And so she wouldn't have to kind of, dig up her guts. Yeah. It's you know, it's from the eye movement uh-huh. and remembering the worst part of the memory.
0: I did I did wonder though, how do you assess people in when you see a client? How do you know when it's time to not see them anymore? And and, and is that up to you or is that up to them? We we review every sort of 6 to 8 weeks. And I
1: think they know when they're done. And we kind of both come to it together. So I wouldn't impose it. I ha- I have very occasionally when I felt people are holding on and it's not good for them holding on to us because they're not really trusting themselves. Yeah. So they are actually strong enough and they can go and do it on their own, um, live their life fully without support. But on the whole, people people want to end. I mean, it's always very sad. I mean, I you know, I remember everybody and... Um, they can't, you know, they live in me, their different stories and their expressions and, uh, You hold a lot of
0: confidential, well, you hold a lot of secrets, don't you? A lot of private things.
1: But that's why it was so lovely writing my books, being able to tell stories because they're based on my clients. And so it kind of unlocked all these stories that have been in me for decades. Mm -hmm. And it was such a joy finding a, a kind of, a narrative for them and seeing them on the page and then seeing them help other people understand themselves that they were curative in themselves was amazingly
0: um was was fantastic for me and the book uh the book is called this too shall pass stories of change crisis and hopeful beginnings who would you say the book's for well, well not i mean
1: right now it's literally for anybody the nation <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it's about living losses so it's 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 divided into five sections so it's change in families change in love change in work health and identity so all the kind of big aspects that make up your life there you know one of the things that is certain is that life is change of course there's more change now than anyone has ever experienced at the same time before but actually, if you look at the research, everyone goes through big changes every seven to ten years. Yeah. Um, and sometimes more. And it could be with the relationships end or jobs end or just with aging or with different phases of your life. And people often feel that they're doing it wrong, that they're somehow everyone else has got this sorted and they're failing. Yeah. And I think the stories are kind of the are the most kind of powerful way to let people know that. Let other people recognise themselves. So even in the stories about a breakup, a divorce, and the person is still happily married, they see aspects of themselves, and that is sort of healing. Uh-huh.
0: And then there's lots of research about it to help you understand yourself. Was it difficult to write? In you know, some, sometimes when you write, things flow, and you know, I would imagine because you're basing it on experience, and but you're making it anonymous at, at the same time, also, and maybe you're reliving painful memories too. I mean. What was the experience of I mean, like you? You, you've you written,
1: you know, some days it's just like, oh, my God, I can't do this. I want to do anything, clean the oven, yeah. empty the dishwasher. And then there are days that are really amazing when I kind of just write 2,000 words and it's boom. Just comes, yeah. But, it, yeah, I love sitting and thinking mm. and I love drawing on all of my experiences Um And not being so busy that I was sitting on, I was being paid to sit on at my desk, tap on my laptop. And I didn't have to run around
0: doing meetings, raising money for the charity. You know, it was just so nice yeah. being at home. We must talk about the charity, actually. Um, and you know, because there is so much to fit in. You know, we have really skimmed over how glamorous you are and your life. And oh my we, god, we, have you seen me today with my shaven, my shaven free? I think it's allowed in lockdown. Uh, it's, I have got it's I've got a tracksuit on my lower half. I've only got a glamorous top half today. Um, you do look lovely. Well, thank you. <laughs> I have got lighting set up as well, I'm very professional. <laughs> Have you? Yeah. So good. So good. But there is this kind of glamour, you know, you, you came from this. don't think so. I think so. I mean, I heard you were photographed for Vogue. I, I, when I was researching I you, I found I was, that out. By the I, My goodness, I
1: was photographed for Vogue and they didn't put it in the magazine. <laughs> now that's not good for confidence <laughs> at all. <laughs> my sisters were photographed photograph for Vogue. And they had like a four-page spread. Wow. So okay. that's how glamorous that's I am. That's character
0: building from an early age. <laughs> Resilience uh, uh, developed right there. So what, yeah. what about, because we haven't talked, I mean, you 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 came from this, is it fair to say privileged upbringing? Uh, yeah, very fair. Yeah. yeah. And that your sisters, were they like high society girls, it girls? What would you, what would you say?
1: Yeah, I mean, they were, so, um, yeah, we came from a very kind of lucky family, Um, with the name, like a brand, you know, it was Guinness. So people, my mum, she didn't, we went to private school and my mum never liked saying on name tape. So she would buy everything from then Guinness. So I had, my swimming towel was a great bottle of Guinness. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> and my she not sure can do that nowadays. Of no, they cut, she they
1: cut up, they were they were drying up cloths and she'd cut out the Guinness bit of the drying up cloth and then put it on my kind of uniform instead of a name tag. <laughs> I mean, I had a Guinness radio, I had Guinness socks. It was like I was a walking, talking advert. It was unbelievably embarrassing. I feel better about my parenting
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't give my kids Piper champagne to take to school.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I should do it, They were funny. Yeah. I mean, my mum was funny. But um, yeah, so they, yeah, they, but they were all kind of adventurous in their own ways. Sabrina went off to LA and worked for different people, and um, they all did round of work for the Stones. Um, my brother is an artist, my twin brother, Hugo, and he got nominated for an Oscar for a um, Grand Budapest Hotel. He's a very talented oh, wow. artist and screenwriter. So they've all done slightly unconventional things actually, they're they're successful, but
0: So all high achievers. Yeah, high achievers, which is incredible because some some people wrongly might think, you know, when when people are envious or bitter and they say, well, it's easy for anyone who has more than me or a better start in life than me, and you know, actually, sometimes it can be the reason not not to push yourself and not to work hard. And you know, all of you and your siblings ha- have worked extremely hard, and even more so that it isn't just your career; you've got this charity as well that you, you've taken on. I mean, that's it's quite but, of But you know, it is luckier. If you if you come from
1: if you have no financial worries, you are well ahead because you're not worrying. You have choices. The great thing about privilege is we were given we had choices that a lot of people don't have. Yeah. So that we could choose. You know, I, as a therapist, you don't get paid much. Certainly in the NHS. Uh-huh. Writing books, you don't get paid much. Yeah. Um, so. I could choose to do things that were really meaningful and and meant a lot to me rather than having to do a job where I had to earn a proper amount of money. Yeah. So, yeah, I do think it made a big difference. Um, and, I mean, I, I'm not a trustee of the charity anymore. I've stepped down from lots of my roles in the charity. I'm still found a patron. It was established by someone called Jenny Thomas, so I helped establish and launch it. But... Um, the fact that I knew Diana as a friend was because of my background, and that right. helped raise the profile of the charity. Mm-hmm. So, all of those things are connected. You can't really pretend. I slogged. I'm a slogger. Yeah, but I had a I had a a good
0: kick. Uh, not a, whatever the word is. I had a, I had a lot of things going for me in the first place. But it's also using the connections for others, isn't yeah. it? You know, it, it's about your your choices and where your energy goes and where where that good fortune goes. I suppose.
1: It's what you do with it. I think it makes a difference what you do with it. Mm. Yeah. And she was, and having Prince William as a, a, a patron is amazing for us. It transformed our fortunes, definitely. It's
0: a brilliant legacy and, and a beautiful connection, yeah. isn't it? It's, really... it's
1: lovely, really lovely. It's so lovely seeing him standing there and making speeches. And, and you're godmother
0: to Prince George, is that right? I am. Because I did wonder, um, obviously you had this very natural friendship that developed into, you know, the charity together. Um, and nobody could have anticipated the terrible tragedy of the passing of Princess Diana. But did you then naturally fall into the role of of almost being the bereavement counsellor in that situation?
1: No, I didn't at all. People have often assumed that, mm. Um but I didn't at all because of boundaries. I didn't, so- I didn't see them. I didn't see them for a long time after she died.
0: Right. Okay. Um, so,
1: no, I didn't have that role. I mean, I really love them both and um, all of them, and uh, I'm, I, I'm close to them. But I've, I, it's always been as
0: a friendship, really. Mm. And do you think that's important then, not to blur those lines? Yeah, I think so. Mm. I think so, and I suppose the the charity bit to you, you know it's gone from strength to strength. It's able to continue, and like you said, William um, is able to. He's the patron, is that right? He's the patron, royal patron. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, do you feel that that's what she would have wanted? That would have been a the legacy that she would have wanted.
1: I don't think one can ever say what someone who's died had wanted, but um, I feel very grateful to him, and I think there's definitely you know he, she came to the launch and she supported me and she helped me make write mm. write my speech and say my speech for the launch and things and um i think it's obviously there's a a part of him that he can
0: sort of feel a line of connection
1: with her through the charity
0: yeah and what about your duties now then as a, as a godparent are they are they busy are they are they taxing duties they're not taxing duties. I do all the, because she was godmother to my
1: son, so I'm as annoying as she was giving impossible <laughs> presents that are impossible to build, incredibly noisy. Oh, no, I hate things uh, like that. <laughs> uh,
0: that.
1: That you wouldn't, that the child would love and the parents go, oh, no. <laughs> um, so
0: we have a lot of fun. See, I mm. always struggle with, um, so Simon Cow is the patron of my charity, Is he? Yeah, his partner was pregnant the same time that I was with with our my first child. So we kind of became friends. And then they always invite us to his birthday parties. So I always... So glam. You're the glamorous one, for goodness sake. Yeah, it's so glam, but it's a mad panic. So I'm always like, what can we buy? What are we going to wear. Oh, what can you buy? Yeah, he must have everything. We can't just... Everything. We can't just buy him like some kind of train set. He's probably... He probably owns a train. Oh, no. So (laughs) I I always... And then I'm like, we can't just go on Amazon like I normally do and get it gift wrapped. (laughs) Actually, do you know, I was going to open the whole interview with this question, do you know that you're privileged from a young age? My, Definitely not. No, my children don't. To no. the point where it, it actually was normal. annoys me. I didn't know anything and I
1: got married at 20. And so um, it was really only kind of in my mid-20s that I realised that it wasn't normal.
0: Yeah. But then actually that's quite a nice way to close the interview with what's happening right now, Um and I suppose with your work as well, it, what, whatever is happening in your life is your normal, isn't it? And I suppose in modern world now, we have all these opportunities to make these comparisons and to see how other people are living, even if they're showing us an edited version of how they're actually living. And I think like you in Corona, I've rollercoasted between, you know, coping, not coping. Drinking by 4 pm. And if you know, like, married, not married, um, oh, I hate him. I hate him so much. <laughs> but I think after Boris's speech, I felt deflated, but I also felt like just got to make a new normal now.
1: And also, sort of, two things come to mind. One is the serenity prayer, which is to accept the things you cannot change, change the things you can, and have the wisdom to know the blooming mm-hmm. difference. Like, stop trying to control things you can't control, and also about control, the things that really matter most in life, birth and death and how people see us, we cannot control. We can influence them, Mm. but we can't control them. So the more you kind of let God and let go, the happier you'll be.
0: Mm. I always think I'm my most happiest when I surrender to what is.
1: Yes. And it's not giving up. Yeah, it's
0: It's the right word.
1: Surrender is the right word.
0: Well, what a beautiful and profound way to end our chat. Um, and I could go for another hour. Um, we must keep talking in other yeah, ways. Yeah, we should. I just feel a real connection with you and, and admiration yeah. for you. Thank you so much for uh, remotely My pleasure. Me. Um, and hopefully we can meet in person again. <laughs> Thank you. Lots of love. Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show where you got this or share on socials.